Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, Oak City Church. Thanks for tuning in with us this morning. Uh, Next week, we will not be having a service. We won't be posting a service on July 5th. Normally, July 4th weekend, we don't do that. This week, this I know things are different this year, but we decided to do that to give our leaders a break. We'll be back the following week, July 12th. We're starting a new series in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, which is really about how do you respond well in a crisis. So I think that's going to be super relevant to what all of us are going through right now. Uh, that's a great chance to invite some people. If you had some folks, like to invite them to tune in. We're starting something new uh, on July 12th that's relevant to what's going on right now. So that leaves me with today to talk about just things that God has on my um, heart and has had on my heart and mind the last couple of weeks, if not the last couple of months. And so I'm going to start this morning in 2 Kings chapter 8. So in the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, the king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was blah, 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 blah. I know that's how it sounds. I say this all the time. You should read your Bible, and you really should read your Bible. I know that this is a tough part of your Bible um, to read because it's like this king had this king, and he was a good king, and then he had this king who was a bad king, and his mother was this, and it sounds like Charlie Brown, the teacher from Charlie Brown after a while, but these are some of the, like, you just find little nuggets of gold. It's like walking in a dark cave and, and seeing a diamond and being like, where did that come from? You discover things in these passages, and so this passage goes on. It says that Hezekiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and he broke the pillars and he cut down the Asherah. He removed the high places and he broke the pillars and he cut down the Asherah. So this is a series of reforms that uh, that Hezekiah is issuing, I guess. Some things that he's doing to reform the nation of Israel. The high places would be places where they worship the Lord, but not in the right way. So they're supposed to go to work to Jerusalem, you know, several times a year to worship in the temple. And that's how they were supposed to worship the Lord and not in these high places, but they would go to the high places. So he tore down the high places. The pillars, he broke the pillars. The, I, I try to figure out what these are in pillars. They are, they, it seems like they're kind of statues, either of the Lord, like a violation of the second commandment or of other gods. And that these were probably pillars of other gods. And I thought, what does that have to do with anything? Tearing down statues of stuff. And then I thought, we're tearing down statues of stuff. This, like, this is really relevant for us. That's what we've done is now we've got some statues and we put them up a while back and we exalted somebody. Then now we're thinking maybe they shouldn't be exalted. And so we're tearing down statues. And really this isn't, it's different, but it's not totally different from what we're going through right now. And then the Asherah, Asherah was a goddess of fertility and different religions in the eastern part of the world in that time had different names for the same goddess. So they is Asherah or Ishtar or Astarte or Oestrar, like all these names for the same goddess. And you go far enough down that rabbit trail and that pun is intended because you'll get to Easter. And the Catholic Church co-opted a pagan holiday it was where they celebrated fertility in spring with bunnies and eggs and so there you are you're right there and i'm not saying there's anything right or wrong with that I and mean, we co-opt 
holidays and now they're Christmas and Easter. But I do want to say like Easter, Asherah, those things are related. And so it's not so different than asking questions about that now. And so this is what Hezekiah is down. He's tearing all this stuff down. It's really great. There could good kings. There's bad kings. Hezekiah was one of the great kings. Uh, and this is what blew me away. So this next line. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses has made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and they called it Nehushtan. The, the bronze serpent, the bronze serpent from the Exodus when they're in the desert is still, they still have that thing. 700 years later, they're still carrying that thing around, and Hezekiah tears it apart. Like, this is a crazy story. So this is Numbers. They're wandering around the desert, and it says the people spoke against God and against Moses, saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, and there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They sound just, they're whiners, they're, and that's what they did in the desert, and God's sick of it. And if you're a parent, you've had a kid, like, it's like I don't want to eat this. Or if you've been a kid, which you have, you told your parents at one point, this isn't any good, and your parents, like, lost it on you. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, don't do that, and they bit people so that many people of Israel died. And the people of Israel came to Moses and said, our bad, we've sinned, we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Just another biblical reason to hate snakes, okay? And so take away the snakes. And Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. And 700 years later, they're still carrying this thing around with them. And Hezekiah's like, this is bad for you. It's so bad that I am going to tear it apart. It's, it's huge that he does this. I would have a hard time doing this. I'm a history buff. It's 700 years old. God told Moses to make it. I started thinking, like, what happened 700 years ago? It was 1320. You know what happened in 1320? No, nothing happened in 1320. It actually got me going to like, okay, 1215, 12, what happened in 1215? Three of you right, are right now are like the Magna Carta. It was the Magna Carta, right? It was the Magna Carta. You know what the Magna Carta was? No, because nobody knows what the Magna Carta was. That's science. It's proved it. And like, it's apparently like the British constitution or something. So imagine if the queen, like that little old lady queen said, the, the Magna Carta is dangerous for us. So I'm going to burn it. Took, took a lighter and just, and they would go nuts. And that's what Hezekiah is doing. He's saying this thing, like this is such a big problem that I'm willing to rip this thing up. I didn't, I wouldn't think God would be too happy with that. And worse, Jesus says, this thing was a picture of him. When he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Jesus, be lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the next line is, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shouldn't perish and have everlasting life. Like, it's that verse, and it's, it's pre prefaced by the story of the fiery serpent. I mean, it's a huge thing. And Hezekiah's like, we got to get rid of this. It's tragic that Hezekiah thinks it's necessary to get rid of this. Uh, and so let me go back to that. He did what was right. 
in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done, he removed the high places, he broke the pillars, he cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Here is my first point. I have three points today. Here's my first point. You were made to worship something. You were made to worship something. You're, you're probably worshiping the wrong thing. You know, much of the time we're worshiping the wrong thing. I think I can say that you are always worshiping something. It doesn't mean you're made to sing to things or you're always singing to something. That's not it. You're worshiping with your life. We are desperate to give ourselves to something that we think will give us life in return. We're desperate for that. We're made to worship something, and so we're going to worship. That's what I see in this passage, a desperate people. We know we are made for some incredible, amazing existence, and I'm desperate for something to lead me there. And you see in the scene like a frenetic worship of all the wrong things. They're worshiping the wrong things in the wrong ways, and even they're worshiping the right thing in the wrong place and in the wrong way. But we're, we're desperate. And so worship is that. It's devoting yourself to something, sacrificing yourself to something, subjecting yourself to something in the hopes that it will give you life. Like, no one doubts that life was meant to be amazing. We may doubt that it will turn out that way, that it's going to meet those expectations. And that may be why we as a culture are wrestling with depression in the way that we are right now. But you don't think that the expectation was wrong. You think that you got off track or something just went the wrong way or someone did you wrong. And it's not bad the way it is, but it's not what it was supposed to be. And so you, you fight against that, you know, you still have hope and you think I can get there and you probably can, but, but maybe not the way that you think you can. Uh, John Calvin was a, he's a guy from the Reformation, a, you know, a kind of a famous dead theologian guy, but he was, he was thinking about this and writing about a different case of the same thing. So he was talking about when, um, Jacob, was in Israel and then he went to um, to the land of his uncle Laban to get a wife, to get away from Esau. And, and then he had he got a couple wives and he had a family and then he came back and on his way back, Rachel, Laban's daughter, is hiding the household idols and they get in a big fight about it. And Calvin is thinking about this, like they've made idols forever. And this is what he said, hence we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. We're always looking things for things to worship that will give us life. He talked about how, I mean, Jacob and Rachel, these are Abraham's grandchildren. And Abraham's, Joshua tells us that Abraham's dad and his granddad worshiped idols like we've been doing this the whole time. And he ends up saying the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, is sunk in the grossest ignorance it substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. Our minds substitute vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God, a perpetual forge of idols. We're made to worship something. We're going to find something to worship. It may be the wrong thing, but we're going to be doing that. Jesus, here's my second point. Jesus is the only thing you can worship that will give you life instead of taking life away from you. Jesus is the only thing you're going to worship that will give you life instead of ultimately taking life away from you. And so let me contrast the frenetic pursuit of this passage in 2 Kings with uh, a psalm of David. So Psalm 27, and it starts like this. The Lord is 
my light. The Lord is my light. Just that line, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, uh, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me or, or pandemic or financial crisis or centuries of injustice or social unrest, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after. One thing, this is a great setup, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. This is like in those cartoons where they rub a lamp and the genie comes out and says you get three wishes. This is like David saying, if I had one wish. Think about that for just a second. If you could ask God for one thing, honestly, if you could ask God for just one thing, what would it be? You know, you read about the high places and the Asherah and the pillars and think there's lots of things that we might chase after with that one thing. We tend to approach this, and we do, we tend to approach God a little bit like a vending machine, that if we put the quarters in and we press the button, then we'll get the, what's the one thing that's going to come out the bottom? Like, what does your heart really desire? Um, I was listening to a podcast I threw out there probably two months ago now in the weekly, it's the Bridgetown Daily Podcast Church up in Oregon. And they, were, they had one about like how we're always seeking what's next. Like there's always this thing that's next, you know, and it's either the next vacation or the next car, or the next house or the next promotion or the next game that our kid have, whatever. There's this, this next, and that's not even bad, but it can become an idol in and of itself. Is there a next that you're gonna ask God for? Is it something related to your health or your image? Is it some step towards financial security or your children's success? Is it your career path or a new house or a new car? Or maybe like a self-righteousness in our day, like we're all trying to be right about the things that are going on and we all like being right. Maybe it's that. One thing, this is David's heart. David, it's at some point, and they're not sure when he wrote this psalm, but he had palaces and he had wives and he had praise and he had children and he had success and he had all those things. In this psalm, he seems to be in a different place. He's got adversaries, you know, he's got foes and evildoers and armies aligned against him. And so my one thing might be related to getting me out of the mess that I'm in right now. But here's what he says. One thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or to meditate in his temple. One thing I want, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. And I know you're thinking right now, are you kidding me? This guy gets one thing from God and he has to go to church. Like that's not it. You know, it's not exactly what he's talking about because you can go to church and not gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And you can certainly gaze upon the beauty of the Lord when you're not in church. But, but, but it is, it is like the one thing he knows that means the most to him that life is wrapped up in is this relationship with the Lord of gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. When I read that slowly, I totally get it, y'all. 
Like, I know, I know that he's right. There's so much peace in my soul when I contemplate what he's saying, and I don't even understand it, but I know it's true. He is talking about a shelter from the storm where you can be at peace with the Lord, where you can recognize him for everything that he is and the love that he has for you and everything that you are in him and just be content. And that's what you're made for and everything else in your life is made to emanate out of that. And if that's not right, then everything else is going to be wrong too. And so he's saying this is the first thing, the one thing to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I've thought a lot during the coronavirus about the idea of indulging things, of indulging. Indulging is really like a similar place. It's a place where we, we get a thing or experience a thing or consume a thing. And we think for that time frame, like everything is just kind of right. You know what I mean? And so we look for stuff to indulge. And so this is, I've felt for years, um, like I'll, I'll meet with different guys in different places and guys like to drink bourbon and I've just thought it tastes like gasoline. I've never liked it and felt like I should figure that out. And so during the coronavirus, I kind of did some research and figured it out and got some nicer bourbon and now I get it. And so that's your pastor. And so you don't need a lot of bourbon to indulge in it. You need actually just a little to indulge in it. And so I get it now. I'm like, that's an indulgence, you know, I, um, we bake a lot of stuff in our house. Our kids bake a lot of stuff too. And so I saw this sourdough thing going around and I, what's the deal? I like sour. What's the deal with that? How hard that can be? It took me like six weeks to get a sourdough starter going before I could make it. And then I, and then I made some really good sourdough. I made a boule, I think, or whatever that thing is. And no one else in my house eats it, but it's, it was kicking me. And I, I got it. I got it down. I made it. It's, and I indulged in it. Uh, I feel like, feel like I kind of gained my mad card with the, the bourbon thing and I gave my man card away with the bread thing. But that, it is what it is. And so people have been doing that during this time is indulging in different things, you know. Um, it can be, you can indulge in something on Amazon. You know, there's a lot of like, have this thing and your house will run better and it's less than 20 bucks and you can just click and it's there, Amazon. Or it can be things we can indulge in. Like, you can't really go out with my wife and just enjoy a nice long meal, you know. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to take the trips. People have had to cancel a lot of trips that are indulgences. Like you want to just spend a day at the beach. We want to indulge. Here's what I, I get out of this passage. Jesus is David's biggest indulgence. Jesus is an indulgence for David. When he's in that space and he gazes upon the beauty of the Lord, everything is right with his world. And I'm so convicted right? I'm so convicted. If you can have one thing, it's Jesus. That's what will give you life. And I don't say that to make you feel guilty or to make me feel guilty. I say that to shake us awake and point us towards the reality of our souls, that he's right. He is right. We're, we're not much different than these Old Testament folks that are frenetically chasing all these idols. In another passage, um, I was reading about the King Manasseh, and it says, during the days of the King Manasseh, the people of Israel actually became worse than the people that God kicked out of the promised land where Israel was in order to let the Israelites moved into the promised land. And so people think God is partial with his justice. He's not. I mean, he kicks the Israelites out of the land in, in just a few chapters after this, he's gonna kick them out because they're not living up to it either. Uh, they had their shot and he gives them the boot. We're just not that different from them. Don't pretend that you're something you're not. Come clean before the Lord. Tell him I'm more like the Israelites under Hezekiah than I am like David searching for this one thing. 
there are a lot of mornings, well, every morning I get up, really, I'm just in a habit where I get up and I want to read the Bible. I want to read God's Word, and hopefully more than that, I want to meet God in His Word. But I make a cup of coffee before I sit down to read the Bible, and my phone stares at me, and it's like, I've got something good for you. I got something good, and the, and the phone is the frenetic place where you can go a million different directions, you know? But it's like something really exciting happened last night, or you got some email that you got to check out. And it's, 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 that's the contrast. It's the battle right there. Hezekiah tearing down these idols that they've spent hundreds of years creating and cultivating and giving themselves to, hoping they'll bring satisfaction in life. And Hezekiah saying, no, stop it, and like shaking them, you know? And David telling Jesus that, that he is the one thing, he knows it, he's the one thing that his soul needs. The word gaze is a Hebrew word, and it's, it's a great word. It's hazah. Hazah. That even sounds like gaze, you know, hazah. It means to see, perceive, contemplate with pleasure, to look, behold. The idea of gazing or beholding requires more than a passing glance. It's a pur purposeful contemplation of something so magnificent that you just can't take your eyes off of it. You drink in the sight, and as you do, you find sheer delight in its presence. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord is to look with full attention into the face of Jesus in all of his glory. I thought, what do we gaze is a great word for this, because what, what types of things do we gaze at? What do we gaze at, y'all? Yeah, it's your, it's our phones. People are caught, we're gazing at that phone, looking intently, thinking it's going to give us life and all the things that it represents and that are in it. We gaze at it. We gaze at the beauty of other people. We gaze at it. Um, and, and I don't, you know, at some level that's fine. At another level, it's creepy, like it's not good. We gaze at it. Uh, we can gaze at the, an object we want to possess. We gaze at what we worship, at what we think will give us life. One author said that, and this was great, he pointed out how David at the beginning of the psalm is talking about the things that he's concerned about. And he said, beauty is just what worry needs. Worry's magnetic attraction, worry's magnetic attraction can only be broken by a stronger attraction. And David is saying we can only find that attraction in God himself. Like we're not gonna break worry's spell on us by looking at the thing we're worried about, but by looking at something that's more magnifying than that, and it's, it's the Lord. When we think of beauty, we think, you know, most often we think of physically, things that are physically beautiful, but we know that's not the extent of it. When God says that he, man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, we know he's right. We know we'll watch a movie or a story and we'll see a sacrifice and we know it's beautiful and it captivates us. So we read a book, we just can't stop thinking about how beautiful it was. And God's beauty is found in his love and it's found in the gospel. Like that God has truth and grace for these people in the Old Testament and he has truth and grace for us and he's not going to let us stay where we are he's going to take us to a better place but even if that's hard he's going to do it because he loves us and jesus was so stunning in his wisdom and his power and his love that two thousand years later we're still talking about even people that don't think he was divine are still talking about his life because he was beautiful and the idea that the god who created two trillion galaxies could take on himself and would take on himself the consequences 
of our sins and give us the promise of an eternity with him where this is what we're doing, living in the light of that beauty. Like that's, that's all beauty. It's God's beauty. That's love. Uh, and to take that in and find contentment in it, in the unchanging reality of him and his love for us, like that's what we're made for. This verse from Hebrews, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He is beauty worth gazing on. Lord, forgive us for getting bored with you. Here's my last point in this. Worshiping well takes work. It, this just doesn't, it's not going to come easy. I think the things that, for a lot of you, the things that I've said are exhortation, you know, like you know this, and it's just shaking you back to center and reminding you. But worshiping well takes work. So, you know, suck it up because it's not going to be easy. <laughs> like there's going to be hard things about this. And here's one. It's hard not to turn God's gifts into God's. It's hard not to turn the gifts that God gives us into God's themselves. That's what they did with the bronze serpent. You know, that was a gift that, um, that God gave them, that they turned that into a God in its own. We can do that with leaders, you know, Christian leaders, other leaders, their gifts that God gives us and they lead us, but then we turn them into God's themselves. We do it with spouses. We do it with children. We do it with stuff. We do it with political leaders and political parties. We think this thing will save me. Uh, Augustine wrote this, all life, potency, health, memory, virtue, intelligence, tranquility, abundance, light, sweetness, measure, beauty, and peace. All these things, whether great or small, they come from the Lord. The problem, he said, is when we take good things and make them bad by becoming absorbed with them and we begin to love them more than God himself. Our tendency is to set our deepest affections on something that God has made rather than God himself. That's always going to be our temptation. No matter what it is, our marriage, our children, our jobs, our health, we'll end up disappointed because that thing can never take the place of God. We'll never find the fulfillment we seek from that part of creation. We'll always expect more from it, no matter how good or noble or innocent than it can deliver. And when it fails to deliver, when it looks like it'll be taken away from us, we get scared. That's hard. You'll work on that every day. You'll face that temptation. You'll have to fight it every day for the rest of your life. One pastor wrote, God's home is the home that I've been, is looking for in every home that I've ever built. That's what I'm looking for is God's home. God's beauty is the beauty I've been looking for in every bit of music, every bit of art, every bit of romance I've ever had. God's face is the face I've been looking for in every encounter and relationship I've ever had. This is what life is about. I found it. If I have this, if I really, I really have the only home possible. If I have this, I have the only safety possible. So that's one of the things that makes it hard. It's hard because God is quieter than we want him to be. Part of the attraction of the bronze serpent is that it was right there. They could see it. They could touch it. You know, it helped them remember what had happened then. And God, you know, don't make any graven images of me because none of them will compare to what I really am. And so we can't see him. And he is quieter than we want him to be. Uh, much of the time, even though some of the times he's insanely loud and like cuts right through everything, you know? I was taking a walk in my neighborhood uh, the other week 
and praying through some things, and I thought, man, if, if God created two trillion galaxies, then we are like right on the edge of a power that is so far beyond our comprehension and could change everything in the snap of the fingers. And it's it can be frustrating that he doesn't do that the way that we think that he should. And so that can be hard. That's hard about worshiping well is when he's quieter than we want him to be and he just doesn't work. There's almost like a process of grieving you have to go through that he doesn't work the way you want him to. But then an acceptance that he does work uh, the way that he knows is right. I was talking to Josh in Nicaragua, and I don't remember exactly how he said this. If you tuned in, Josh, you can you can text me and let me know exactly how I said this. But it was something to the effect of like praying through the future and vision and all these things and saying God's too quiet to just, like we pray to him, but he's too quiet to wait for him to like drop us a postcard and say, here's exactly what you're supposed to do. Like we have to move. And so, and that's hard. And so God is quieter than we want him to be. And finally, following Jesus doesn't always pay off the way that we want it to. It pays off, but not the way that we want it to. I was reading through Hebrews 11 recently, and that is the like a, a chapter about all these heroes of the faith. And so he, he talks about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and all these people. And then he goes on and he says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith, and then he starts listing off all that they did through faith. Through faith, they conquered kingdoms and they enforced justice. And they obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of fire and escaped the edge of the sword. And they were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. And women even received back their dead by resurrection. You're like, yes, sign me up for some of that stuff, you know. But then it turns and he says, and some were tortured. And you're like, oh, well, that's, that doesn't sound good. Refusing to accept release so that it may rise again to a better life. Well, okay. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I don't know how that made it past the editors. Like, those aren't good selling points for following Jesus, you know, but sometimes it doesn't work out the way that you want it to. But you're, but you're being faithful and you're in the middle right where he wants you to be. He said, all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. All these, they were commended for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. That stuff doesn't sound like fun. It doesn't sound like huzzah. It doesn't sound like gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Although in the midst of those situations, that's surely what you learn how to do in ways that you never do in times of abundance. It doesn't always work out the way that we want it to. And sometimes it seems a little bit arbitrary. And so that can make worshiping well hard, you know. But count the cost of those things and know that worshiping well takes work, but worshiping well is worth it. In spite of all that, don't, don't give up because life is found in Christ. He is the one thing that you'll worship that will give you life instead of ultimately taking life away from, life away from you. Don't, and don't settle. Church, don't settle for where you are. Pursue whatever's next in your relationship with him and know that it's meant to grow.
I've been, I picked up a book that someone left at the church and it may have been you uh, called They Found the Secret, which is a little bit of a cheesy title, but it goes through these little stories of John Bunyan and Amy Carmichael and Oswald Chambers and Finney and all these Christian heroes of the faith, you know, but really what it talks about is how they got to a place in their relationship with the Lord and they felt a little bit stuck and then they kept pursuing it and then it opened up to something that they never dreamed of, almost like in the second half of their walk with Christ. And I thought, man, I, what they had, I want. And so don't settle and don't stop and continue to pursue that place where the one thing that you want is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I'm going um, I'm gonna finish by reading the end of all, uh, Psalm 27. And so this is uh, right after he talks about gazing upon the beauty of the Lord because his tone changes. Like it's anxiety, and then he talks about gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. And then he says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. It pours out of him. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Now he turns to the Lord, says, Hear when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer to me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. You who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God, of my salvation. My father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. Because of my enemies, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe, this is how he finishes, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Father, we're before you today, and I pray that you would help us to recognize. I thank you for the way you've helped me to recognize how I am just like those Israelites in the days of Hezekiah. We are not different from them. We frenetically pursue all these things that are substitutes for you, Lord. And yet, and yet, I know. I read Psalm 27, and I know that is the truth. That the one thing I need, the one thing I really want, the one thing I'm made for is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life in your temple and to be in your presence. And, and coming out of that, flowing out of that is life, Lord, is love, the life that you made me to live. Lord, help us to, to not be, forgive us for being bored with you, God. Renew Renew our, our flame for you, God. Renew our joy in you. Renew our desire for you. Give us new understanding of you, new vision of the greatness of who you are, God. And may that change us and make us into people that you can use to change the world around us. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.